which was a good thing that came out of COVID, really, I think, to be able to do um, go into some vineyards and kitchens around the world. Exactly. You know what we need to do? We need to take a picture of ourselves for Tim Littlechild. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the, That's got to happen. Exactly. The Three Musketeers, as <laughs> nobody ever called us. Never. Yeah, no. <laughs> so what have you got for our listeners this morning? Okay, well, it's some interesting news from around the world, starting with something in Malaysia. And uh, that country is launching its first lab-grown meat facility. It's, it's given an official announcement on it, and that means meat generated from cells in petri dishes, uh, which give a smaller carbon footprint because you're not clearing grounds to have grazing cattle. You don't get all of their emissions, which are one of the biggest sources of greenhouse uh, gas effect, more than carbon dioxide that humans breathe out. Absolutely. And also for some people who choose not to eat meat, sorry, not to eat meat, my nose is a bit blocked, not to eat meat um, for ethical reasons mm. and not to slaughter any animals and you want the taste of it, that's, uh, I suppose... Uh, that's a really interesting yeah. question. I wonder what people think about taking cells from a live animal and cultivating it. Okay. Morally. Yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah. That's I, interesting. It would be but, good to get some feedback on that, listeners. Yeah. Okay. If if uh, yeah, if some of our listeners are vegan. If you choose not to kill an animal for meat, would you have lab-grown meat? You know, meat that has been grown in a petri dish from an animal that is still living but has just had a couple of cells taken for lab production. Exactly. And cells shed all the time. Well, they are. Yeah. Yes, they are. <laughs> okay, right. So um, this this announcement is uh, at the beginning of a project which is happening now. There's a Malaysian company called Cell Agritech, and it's it's based in Penang, the island of Penang in uh, northern Malaysia, and it's wanting to get this production facility up and running by the end of next year. And they're going to have lots of cells grown in bioreactors and they intend on making a big impact in the traditional farming that is done around Asia and other parts much further away than Malaysia by going for quality products. Actually, they're going for fish and seafood. They're going for fish and eel. Those are two of their first types of products that they're going to do before they go for meat. And the reason is that they think that they can do that process faster, the cultivating of it. In the end, they hope to be doing both meat and fish, and uh, they will be launching the fish product if all goes well at the end of next year. Wow, that could really solve the problem of overfishing because, you know, here in Asia or, well, globally, people love to eat fish and, and, and sushi and whatnot. So maybe that could be the, the way forward. I don't yeah, know. it could be. It could be. There, I'm sure that different varieties of fish can be grown later. You have to start somewhere, and they're starting with uh, garupa okay. um, and also, yeah, Japanese eel. Not sure why they've chosen those. Uh, Maybe it's easier to grow. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Maybe they're more basic in the cultivation and yeah. they'll kind of go on from there. It would be amazing if you could get that variety of uh, that you can find on a sushi platter yeah. that could be all grown in a, in a lab. Just be interesting, wouldn't it? Exactly. Would you feel weird eating fish or meat that you knew came from a lab source? Anything odd about that, Noreen? <laughs> yeah, if you really think think about it, and, and, no, I probably won't because I'll, I might feel better that you know no animals were Suffered. killed. Yeah, 
as and, a result of that. And less uh, grazing land was decimated. Oh, and, and absolutely, with, with climate change and all. And all. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, that, that's one of the reasons that it's made such a, uh, a big news around Southeast Asia. Um, currently, Malaysia doesn't allow the sale of cultivated meat because it's done already. We've spoken about it before and it is going on in other parts of the world. But they don't allow it, so this is a big... Um, breakthrough in the Malaysian government allowing that to happen and the company that's doing it uh, Cell Agritech is going to be working with a Singapore based cultivated seafood producer, there you go right next door to Malaysia even though um, cultivated foodstuffs like meat and fish are not allowed they're going to work with this uh, Singaporean company called Umami Meats bit of a misleading uh, company name possibly they also do fish <laughs> but it's <laughs> but it's umami uh, the beans oh no umami yeah. that's your edamame oh sorry yeah, yeah. Umami, umami, u- umami is a it comes from a japanese word it's a bit like the terroir that's used in english uh, for wine but but it's it's not the same meaning but umami means a kind of savoury saltiness from oh, the food yeah, that's yeah. It. Yes, yeah. and it looks like a quality yeah. so that's that, that's they're going to be working in tandem they're going to be like a um uh, a kind of quality control experts they've been doing it for years uh, the other thing is about con- uh, uh, controlled um, you know lab grown meat apart from the livestock is that um, there are no antibiotics because what's taken from the animal and uh, and I've, I, I stress to add that the the head of this company was interviewed um, in CNA media based in Singapore and he said that that only one they would they, they choose basically the animal with the best DNA for this purpose that will react the best in a cultivating situation. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because what if we get sick or what if something's wrong with that piece of meat? I, well, I don't know how I'm articulate, but what if something's not right with it and then it grows and then we we intake it and then it affects our own health? Well, yeah. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that's going on in the two like years. GM. We hope, yeah, uh, yeah. So, you, you just you, you don't know what, but what what is known is that cultivated meat has been going on for some time in different countries around the world, and so far. There haven't been reports of anything um, weird like that happening, not to say that it couldn't do. Um, price-wise, apart from uh, environmental uh, help that it uh, that will happen, but price-wise, all products ab- will average around 10 US dollars a kilo. So that's about $80 a-, a kilo to produce. Of course, then it goes to wholesale, retail, and all the rest of the add-ons that you get with that. But it's um, it does sound not as expensive ultimately as you as you might imagine well yeah exactly i mean we often say that plant-based meat um those food is sometimes a bit expensive yeah. a bit pricey sometimes you... more well often more than yeah definitely more than than the the real thing itself. your old slaughtered stuff yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you put it this way well, yeah well so cultivated meats have mostly pluses then but it's not to be overlooked that the cult that the production of it does generate waste materials of its own kind that can have um the detrius that is left over you could say from bioreactors and other equipment that is used to produce it and they need to be managed properly. This is really important and this is part of the planning as much as the growing and profit making and environmental I don't want to call it greenwashing, but it's, you know, the projection of being environmentally friendly is um so you do need to look at that. And the technology needs to be refined to improve 
the, uh, the, the, the waste that's produced and also to reduce costs further to make it reachable for people at all levels. Because if it does turn out to be similar or even slightly more than, um, than, than your traditional meat and fish, then people might not be able to afford to, uh, to, to buy it. So... Um, what else can I say about that, really? Oh, yes, one interesting point, finally, on this uh, in Malaysia is whether cultivated meat can be considered halal halal or not. And this is being debated among Islamic scholars and experts in Malaysia right now. Okay, because halal is when you sort of say a prayer uh, before you slaughter the animal. Yeah. But then in this case, no animal was slaughtered. That's right. Maybe a prayer can be say when you take the cells or something. Will that make it halal? I wonder at what point. I mean, maybe yeah. this will come out in further news, but at what point a prayer could be said to... Um, when you extract the... Yeah. Well, is it, would it be the finely grown meat... Uh, product oh, or, or would it be at the inception stage very interesting yeah. so yeah yeah watch this space yes for for the for the halality yes. of uh, so th so the launch comes as uh, global meat consumption has increased significantly in recent decades with per ca uh, capita consumption uh, almost doubling since the early 1960s that's according to uh, united nations uh, food uh, department and uh Poultry production in Malaysia is projected uh, to continue to go up. In the last 10 years, in the last decade, um, it went uh, double from uh, from 2010 to 2020. Yeah, it doubled from uh, uh, 1.7 billion metric tonnes to 3.2. So if that's going to continue, this, if it can be done on a large scale, could be really helpful. That's all I'm going to say on that. That was quite a lot of detail. Going to move on to something a little lighter in nature. Um, the uh, the recently crowned King Charles III, I've uh, sent you a picture of him with uh, the latest dish that is supposed to symbolise his coronation, Noreen. Yes, that's right. And I posted on Facebook and we have a comment actually from, from one of the listeners. But before I get to the comment uh, from the listeners, are you a fan of La Quiche? I used to be because my mum was a big fan and she made them and I enjoyed eating them. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's. Is it hard to make? Can you make? Uh... I have made them. Also, my sister has got a fantastic recipe. And a couple of times visiting from Hong Kong, we were wowed by her quiche with salmon and different. You know, Whoa. you can you can put in different uh, different things. So yes, when I came back, I did try. It's actually not that. It's not not difficult. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've never had a quiche until I went to the UK, and it's is is it from the UK? It's not a French. It's French, yeah. isn't it? But so why is Le it quiche. so? La quiche. Yeah, I thought so. So why is it so popular in the UK? Well, it certainly was, or has been through phases of being popular. Ah. Then I think um, there was some kind of. Um, thing that it wasn't a very male food to have among your kind of traditional heterosexual <laughs> types. Really? That, uh, that it was mostly coming from men's comments, actually, that it's like, oh, you can't eat a quiche. It's kind of, there, was, there was that. There, there was you that have to have attitude. a pastry, a Cornish pastry or <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah, 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 or a, bit, or a beef, beef, steak and kidney pie. Oh, yeah. Sorry, but, it, but it's, um, yeah. But however, the, uh, the newly crowned king in the UK did not shy away from whatever was said of that nature because... This year, the royal family announced that the quiche um, would become a, uh, a dish that would symbolise his coronation. And it's um, it, it included within it, because basically it has an egg 
base, usually with a bit of cheese, and it has a pastry crust. crust. It's in a shallow dish if people don't know what quiche is, and it's quite soft, it's baked, and so you end up with something which resembles almost an omelette in pastry, really, with different fillings or different uh, ingredients thrown in to the eggs, which are stirred up traditionally with milk, or in this case, as a royal one, with cream. Wow. Uh, yeah. Fancy. It, it, it's very fancy. The thing that some people were surprised about caused a lot of people to chatter in the UK when this, this was announced was that he's got fava beans in it, or fava. You say fava, I say fava. <laughs> fava beans. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, um, really? Yeah. So um, this is not a traditional ingredient, but critics, food critics in the UK have given the, uh, their, their nod of approval to that. And so it launched much like his late mother, Queen Elizabeth II, had a dish named after her. Have you ever tried coronation chicken? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, when that, when that was released at the time of her coronation in 1953 it was seen as a crazy dish it was it was so outlandish uh, but but to, by today's standards um in chain store uh sandwich shops in the uk uh rather than in other places Standard, yeah no, basically it's, it's a bit like a kind of mayonnaise. mayonnaise with a bit of curry powder isn't it exactly yeah <laughs> and i've tried the coronation egg as well oh yeah yeah that's yeah. yummy too yeah yeah yes. i think that was a i think that was a cheeky add-on but the chicken <laughs> was first presented at a banquet after her coronation in 1953 to 300 plus foreign dignitaries and um, she didn't even have a spoonful. She, for her, it was too, wow, what is this? It's too, too outlandish, which was, um, she, I, I mean, she, she kind of skipped past that course. It was served with a salad as a starter. That's the I, first time it appeared. That's so funny. Wow. I wonder if she ever got a chance to try it after. Ah, yes. Yeah. Actually, it was, it's been reported that she did. She uh, probably had some private tastings to get acclimatised to such an outlandish set of ingredients. Exactly. But it was too ethnic, you know, with the spices for her. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's funny you say that, but, you know, the reason it was chosen was because of the British Empire. So ah. it does have some... It comes with some baggage, that dish. It was ah. meant to symbolise the... Uh, the British colonial India. Of course. Yeah. yeah wow. Deep. You, but you yeah. wouldn't. But you wouldn't necessarily. No. No. No one would really necessarily think about it. Exactly. Uh, and also, it was at a time, 1953. I mean, I grew up in the UK, and when I grew up, the only Asian food that were around was the UK version of Cantonese food. Mm. Um, Indian restaurants came along later, and so in 1953, it would have been considered very, very exotic. Exactly. Just, and it just depends on where you stand online. I mean, some people detested the that the, the being part of the colonies exactly people enjoyed you know what with the mix of culture I know. and the same with hong kong some people didn't want to be a part of the the, the empire and some people you know miss it so it really depends i'm yeah. i'm sure that there would be some people that for decades since 1953 when coronation chicken was uh, was launched that would never consider having it oh, for its colonial exactly um, i've got indian friends who yeah. who say oh it was the worst thing that happened to us but then i've got indian friends that oh you know we we really enjoy it and now we like going to britain and Mm. So, in interesting. Right, right. Okay, but this time is a quiche, coronation quiche. It's coronation quiche, and um, yeah, it, it basically, so it has fava beans, and uh, there are, I think there's onion as well. Having real cream is part of it. The only, there was one little hiccup, though. The, uh, the, the, the culinary school that works together, which was a French 
uh, based school, the, uh, the Cordon Bleu Culinary School, um, they did say that it would be suitable for vegetarians. However, there is lard, which is um, animal fat, in the pastry. So it's uh, it really, there's some, some vegetarians might not really want to do that. There was a lot of discussion about this among food types in the UK. <laughs> and so they came up with alternative recipes using vegetable oils ah, for the pastry. Okay. Yeah. I wonder if that changes the consistency. It certainly does. Yeah. So, uh, Maybe the, more flaky, less... Um, yeah, it, may, it would make it more flaky and it will hold together less easily when you bake it. Yeah. I, I've tried making pastry with uh, olive oil thinking it would be healthier than butter and it doesn't do this doesn't do the same thing have you ever tried that no, no. I right right it's um i i thought when well, i was trying to um haven't spoken about this for some time now but i'm going to bring it up the c word don't worry cholesterol <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's 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 something that i was avoiding all dairy products so i thought i would try to make a pastry with olive oil uh, but it falls apart in your hand well it's kind of like the egg tart when you've got the flaky pastry oh, yeah. and the butter pastry so yeah, yeah true. If, if you like the end result, it's yeah. fine. Um, so, moving on to another topic. Uh, for the last two weekends, the Hong Kong administration-funded Happy Hong Kong events have been taking place. That is two-day food fairs, which have drawn massive crowds. First time it happened was in Wan Chai uh, Hong Kong uh, Exhibition and Convention Centre, and then the weekend just passed was in Sha Tin, two different venues in Sha Tin, one indoor, one outdoor. Door. The outdoor one was temporarily closed because of that really bad weather that happened on Sunday, but it managed to get back in action after the uh, the rainstorm warnings uh, were dropped, and it pulled a lot of a lot of people in, massive crowds, as you can see from the photos that I've sent you, Noreen. So many people, and most of them with face masks. A lot of people were. You know, what's interesting with because that? This is a crowded place. Yeah, so yeah. I've noticed on the MTR uh, that people are more people are wearing face masks again now because of uh, the you flu. Know, flu, no, flu yeah. also, but but there have been uh, reports of more more COVID around That's right. again. Yeah. So, uh, in fact, uh, yeah, I think um, there, there were government government announcements saying, you know, don't worry about it too much. We've got enough people have caught it and had jabs, but uh, some people do. Um, so. Mrs. D, my, my wife, was um, was nearby working in Wan Chai two Saturdays ago, so she went along. She was um, my correspondent for, uh, <laughs> for finding out how things were going down. She popped in about 11am two Saturdays ago to the convention centre, and it wasn't quite as crowded as the... South China Morning Post picture that I sent you yeah. um, of the uh, of the Wan Chai event because crowds had gathered um, in in a queue uh, from two hours before that event opened, mostly elderly people, and uh, they were they they seemed to be enjoying themselves according to Mrs D, and uh, she didn't have time though because she was working and she'd finished work and the queues were still massive. It was much less crowded than that picture. It was basically Chanteng offerings. She said um, that you could get milk tea bubble bubble teas were there as well and there were there were hargao and siu mai and things like that that you could buy some samples were being given out for free oh, yeah yeah oh, oh, there was also an international section in the one in the convention center which had 
um, yeah, European and different Asian food. And the 50-year-old Indian restaurant Gaylord from Chimsa Choi was among the booths and it wanted people to try things that weren't just curry dishes because it thought that Hong Kong people might associate Indian food mostly with curries and rice. So it also had other types of desserts and also some starters not just samosas, but some others as well that people might not be so familiar, familiar with. with yeah. Yeah, yeah. And in Sha Tin, at the one that just happened at the weekend just now, um, mostly positive, but one person was grumbling in one article that I read saying that 80 Hong Kong dollars for a bowl of rice noodles was a bit much. <laughs> So uh, can't please everyone. Uh, that is a bit much, to be honest, yeah, uh, unless they were really much. good, unless yeah. they were really cracking noodles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you can find out more. Uh, the announcements are being given on the website www.happyhk.gov. .hk. Wow, a way to people's hearts is through the stomach. So. Yes, that is what they say, Rory. Um, and we, uh, while we have a couple of minutes left, and I won't be able to delve into this as deeply as I wanted to, but here we go. Um, a famous UK food critic who goes by the name of Jay Rayner wrote an article about his guide to restaurants, which is not based on dishes that are cooked, but it's on all sorts of things, like the font of the restaurant and the font of the menu. If you go to a restaurant, he says, and you have a look at the menu at the door, uh, or in the UK where he's based, they have a window menu. Even in fancy restaurants, they'll put a, uh, a menu in the window rather than on a stand or whatever. For some reason, that's the way they do it. He said, if you get anything that is in italic, don't do it, because it shows they're taking their thing, their self too seriously, and... Uh, that he doesn't like the idea of that. Uh, also, if you see anything in Comic Sans, that's a type of script that's like bubbly, like cartoon style. He said, just don't even look at the menu if you see that stuff. And uh, also, if you do get to the menu and descriptions that are uh, coming at you with words like sumptuous, medleys of this and that, or symphonies of this and that, or if they describe their own dishes as mouth-watering, he says back away from that from that menu <laughs> he's this, so funny it's all it's all very amusing yeah and what else does he say don't go for um a menu that looks like it's overcompensating for deficiencies in the kitchen so if they're using too many adjectives saying how lovely and you know it'll be the best this and that it seems like they're just you know blowing hot air basically so that's that's one thing he says also he recommends restaurants that have not too many dishes because if they have fewer dishes they're going to probably do them you know better and put more effort into those if they've got too many certainly in his opinion he says that menus are likely to have a lot of frozen ingredients that are just taken out and microwaved to quickly heat them up pre-prepared which is the way the way restaurants work but they're going to quickly mi uh, microwave them up and then you know throw them together he said the one exception for that is uh among some asian foods where um back to indian food which is popular in the uk um where there are a lot of different dishes and those sauces and different elements of the dishes will have been prepared individually he's been into kitchens and found that to be the case same with uh some chinese restaurants and some thai as well um so yeah if it passes all of these points then he says do check on prices very carefully before you sit down excellent andrew dambina thank you so much until next week thank you <laughs>